Good morning, church. I have to be honest, I, I feel a little bit of a poser when I come up after that music because that is way too cool for me. But it does give you some swag. You know, you kind of want to start moving and grooving. Well, if you will, open your Bibles, please, to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, I need you to go ahead and get there because we're going to approach the text pretty quickly. I hope that as you open your Bibles, you open your hearts as well. Uh, that's really what we need. We need to open our hearts to say, God, we want to hear from you today. That's what I want, and that's what I've been praying. That's what our staff has been praying uh, for you. So uh, open your Bibles and open your hearts. Uh, I want to begin by talking about a few phrases that are in our world that cause us to kind of slightly tilt our head like, I don't think I understand that, or I don't know if I actually believe that. Uh, you've heard the saying before, money can't buy happiness. You're like, is that true? It can buy me a boat. Have you heard that country song? Nobody heard that country song? Okay, don't listen to it. Uh, or there, there's another one kind of in that same vein that it's more blessed to give than to receive. Some of you are like, I'll, I'll try that. Let me try it, okay? May, let me receive first and then, then I'll see. Or there's another one that if, if you're a parent, you've probably said this, that when you, if you've ever spanked your child, I don't know if you're into that nor am I advocating that, but you said, this hurts me more than it hurts you. You heard that one before? I grew up in small town country, Texas, where if you went to the principal's office, you got licks. You know what I'm talking about, right? I mean, and the principal would say, this hurts me more than it hurts you. No, it doesn't. I promise you. I promise. I wanna talk about those phrases because they're hard to believe because there's a phrase that's in 1 Peter chapter 3 in verse 17 that might cause you to tilt your head a little bit and go, Really? Is that really what he's saying? Do we really believe it? Look at it. First Peter chapter three, verse 17. It says, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Now, there are a few things in here that cause you to tilt your head. You're like, it's bet suffering. There are better types of suffering I, th I thought all suffering was just bad. Like, like none of us, us wanna suffer, and that's true. None of us do, and I hope you don't have to suffer. But what Peter says here are there are different things that we suffer for, and some are better than others. That, that, there, that suffering, first of all, you've, you've got to understand this. Suffering is inevitable. Suffering in life is inevitable. We live in a fallen world. And if you're suffering, you just have to understand this is a part of our broken world. But he says there are really kind of three types of suffering, and you get it all from this verse. That first, there are those types of suffering that are just according to God's will. You don't know why you're going through it. You don't know why you're suffering for it. It's just a part of God's greater plan. He's gonna use it to bring him glory, like the book of Job. That's a great example. Job didn't deserve it. Job didn't do anything for it. It was according to God's will and according to God's plan so that God could prove that Job wasn't just going to worship God for the stuff that he got, but God was worthy of worship because of who he is. That's ultimately what was going on there in the book of Job. There's a second type of suffering that's mentioned here, and that's suffering for doing evil. And we all understand that on a macro level as we look at our entire world that 
evil in our world has caused many, many people to suffer. And, and evil is still causing people to suffer uh, today. And we understand that also on, on a micro level, that if, if I sin, then there are consequences to my sin, I, and I, I suffer those consequences. We get that. This is like uh, Jonah. Jonah ran from God and suffered consequences. It, it was sin. Uh, then you get the third type of suffering, and that's suffering for doing good. That sometimes in life, you can be doing good things and suffer consequences for the good that you're doing. An example of this would be like Joseph. If you remember Joseph in Potiphar's house, he runs away from the woman who was searching after him for improper reasons and an improper relationship. And out of integrity, he runs, yet he gets accused of something, falsely accused of something that he didn't do and is therefore in prison. He suffers for doing good. To remember these, one, I think it was a pastor, a commentator that I read, called these the three sufferings of Joe. You get Job, Jonah, and Joseph. I think that's a good way to remember it. But there is suffering for doing good. And none of us really like to think about that or even admit that. And oftentimes we think of this in the form of persecution. And, and we think that oftentimes we shouldn't be persecuted for our faith. But let me remind you, don't forget what Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 15, verse 20. He said, no servant is greater than his master. If the world persecuted me and you're following after me, what do you think they're gonna do to you? If we are living like Jesus, then we should be treated as Jesus was treated. I mean, doesn't that make sense? The world is gonna treat us the way that they treated him if we look like him. And we know that this happens, this kind of persecution happens throughout our world. And I could tell you of persecution that happens in other countries. You know, we, we pray for a lot of those folks. We pray for our brothers and sisters right now in, in China, specifically, where the churches are being shut down by the government. We have a, a pastor specifically that we're praying for who's been in, imprisoned strictly because he's been leading a church. I mean, that, that's persecution for doing good. We, we hear other stories from other ministry partners that I pray for, uh, ministry partners in India, who these, they have believers who are literally being beaten and set on fire because they're believers, just because they follow Jesus. And these are extreme forms of persecution. And praise God that we don't experience that, or have, many haven't experienced that in our country today. But folks, let's just be real. If we look like Jesus, it's gonna be harder and harder to, to live good lives without being persecuted in our own country in the coming days. It, it's gonna be a reality that if we look like him and live like him, then we're gonna be persecuted and suffer for doing good. It, 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 it's inevitable, it's gonna happen. And there are, when I think about the suffering for doing good that we already kind of experience in, in our world and in our country and in our context today, I, I really see it, if you break it down, into a loss of three categories. It's a loss of prosperity, a loss of opportunity, and a loss of popularity. When we, when we really do live like Jesus in our context, I know that some of you lose prosperity. 
that because you don't uh, live like the world, whether it's in, in your business or in your vocation or whatnot, you might lose business. You lose different uh, aspects of your life that you could prosper in if you did things differently. I totally understand that. And that is a form of persecution. As you live for doing good, you're therefore persecuted again. You suffer. I get it. Some of you lose opportunity. I'll give you another example. Let me go to folks who aren't married. You're probably being forced to, not forced, slightly coerced by your parents of when are you gonna find a nice boy or a nice girl and give us grandchildren? You know, you've heard it before. When is that going to happen? And you feel this sense of, man, I feel this sense of loss of opportunity because there just aren't that many great guys out there. There aren't that many great girls out there that say, my heart is set aside for Jesus and I'm gonna live for him. Despite what this world says, I'm not going to live like the world. There's a loss of opportunity and a delayed gratification that comes there. And then there's just simply the loss of popularity. When we are doing good, we're not the most popular people. Trust me, I know. Nobody kills a party faster than a pastor. Okay, I've walked in on them and it's like the air is sucked out of the room. Everybody leaves, which is why, man, I don't, I don't show up to them. You know, I don't, want, I, don't, I don't wanna kill people having fun, but listen, I, I'm not invited to parties. I get it, it's okay, it's fine, I understand. And none of us wanna be unpopular though. None of us wanna be the buzzkill. None of us want to be the reason why the party folded. Nobody wants to do that. Nobody wants to look like the oddball. Nobody wants to be, even whether you're an individual in the workplace, whether you're an individual with friends, whether you're the parent that sets more stringent uh, boundaries for your children, you don't wanna be the weird one that's fighting not only against your peers, but against your children for what they can or cannot do and what looks right. And you feel ostracized and put on the outside looking in. Nobody likes that. And because nobody likes a loss of prosperity, nobody likes a loss of opportunity, nobody likes a loss of popularity, we usually take one of two tracks. We usually either first compromise our standards and just say, okay, I won't live like Jesus, I'll look more like the world and I'll try to blend in so that I have prosperity, I have opportunities, I have a little bit of popularity. Because I, Cody, I just don't wanna look that weird. I understand. But I think if you compromise your standards, then you're gonna fall into suffering for doing evil. That's not gonna lead to the right path. Then there's another path. And that's the, the other path that people take rather than compromising their standards is vindicating themselves and their own position. And they say, well, Cody, I'm just gonna tell them that they're wrong and I'm right. And we wanna justify ourselves in front of everyone else how right we are for the stance that we take. And let me tell you, that's fine to speak up and, and, and state your position. But if you do it in a way that makes other people, it demeans them, then that's probably not the most uh, Christ-like way to approach these things. And by the way, in this world, even if you try to vindicate yourself, you will never receive 
the vindication that you desire. You'll never receive satisfactory retaliation or satisfactory restitution in this world. It'll never happen. Even if you go full guns ablazing at folks to show that your position is right and they are wrong, you'll never be satisfied. So you're sitting here going, great, Cody, thanks. <laughs> what do I do? Well, I think... First Peter tells us what we should do. But what I've got to do first is I've got to show you why Peter says it's better to suffer for doing good. And then I have to show you how to live that out in your daily lives. So let's look at First Peter chapter three. We're gonna be in those verses eight to 22. But the first reason why Peter says suffering for good is better is because when you suffer for good, it brings you a blessing as you identify with Christ. Now, folks, we are moving into a world of faith. Okay? You go, that's gonna bring me a blessing? You have to approach the word of God. You have to approach your relationship with God in faith. Remember when Paul says in Philippians chapter three, verse 10. He says, I want to know Christ and know him in his sufferings. Do you remember that? There's this intimacy that comes from identifying with Christ. And Peter echoes the same blessing that comes as we identify with him so that in our weakness, we are made strong through his power. Look at verses eight to 12. I'm just gonna read the whole chunk and then I'll break it uh, down for you. He says, finally, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called. Why? That you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. We're gonna stop right there. Let me break this down for you because what Peter is saying here is we're gonna have to live like Christ and that means we're going to suffer for doing good in this world. Again, it's inevitable and what he's encouraging folks to do is to not fight against his enemies, but to leave the battle unto the Lord. To not fight to be vindicated themselves, but to say, Lord, this is your battle. You fight for me. And that's actually why he quotes Psalm 34 in that section. And he says that the Lord's eyes are on the righteous. It's very, this is very personal language about our intimacy with the Lord and our relationship with him. That his eyes are on us, his ears are open to our prayer, and his face is against the righteous, which means his face is turned towards us. And when you read, especially when you read the Old Testament, face is always equal to God's favor. So he's saying his favor isn't upon the evil, but his favor are on the righteous. And he says, you identify with Christ when you suffer for doing good in this world. Because what did Jesus do wrong? Jesus didn't do anything wrong in this world. He was sinless, yet crucified. Not treated well for doing good. So 
What are you supposed to do in this world when you are suffering for doing good? The first is very simple, this. Don't take your frustrations out on other people. I feel like we need to say this, especially for the times that we've been living in these days. Don't take your frustrations out on each other. We've all been experiencing tough times. And oftentimes, it's those people who are closest to us that bear the brunt of our emotions. And when we have a, I mean, that's where the old saying comes from, you know, you kick the dog. You go, what did the dog do? Well, you're having a bad day. Don't kick your dog, okay? Look at verse eight. Look back at it. He says, finally, all of you, you know, he's, remember, he's talking to believers here. All of you have unity of mind. Have sympathy for other people. Have brotherly love. This is the phileo love where you get Philadelphia from, city of brotherly love. A tender heart and a humble mind. Totally contrary to the attitudes that I usually have when I suffer. When I suffer, I want everything to be about me. I'm selfish, therefore serve me. And if I've had a bad day and you are not bending your, you, you know, you're not treating me well, I'm gonna take it out on you. And he says here, hey, don't take out your frustration. When you're suffering for doing good, don't take it out on those that are close to you. They, they haven't done anything. They're there to support you. Have unity of mind. Have sympathy for one another. There, there's a, a saying that we talk about and has been used in the counseling world a lot. Hurt people hurt people. You, you may not have ever heard that before, but it's very true. Oftentimes, hurt people hurt people. They, they take out their frustrations on other people because they don't know what to do with that. And he's saying here, the Lord, his face is upon us. His ears are open and attentive to our prayers. His eyes are on us. He knows our situation. He's gonna fight our battle. So don't battle the ones who are supposed to support you, the ones who can give you sympathy, the ones who have tender hearts. Because if you start taking it out on them, they're gonna have hard hearts toward you. Hey, if you're suffering for doing good, don't take it out on each other. Second, Bless those who don't deserve it rather than retaliating. Bless those who don't deserve it rather than retaliating. This is another one that causes you to do the head tilt. Really? It, this reminds me of Matthew chapter five when, when Jesus says, when, when Jesus quotes, if you remember in the pastor's desk, none of you read it, but in the pastor's desk, uh, the the Code of Hammurabi that was written in 1754 BC when, when it says, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You've heard that before. And I love how Jesus says that in Matthew chapter five. When he's speaking in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, hey, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I mean, he quotes it. He said, but I tell you, turn the other cheek, which is just mind-blowing to people. What? You mean I shouldn't retaliate? You mean I shouldn't be about restitution? You mean I shouldn't get back what someone has taken from me? It's a totally different way of life. And Peter echoes that here in verse nine. He says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, why? So that you may receive a blessing. You see, oftentimes, 
we look for a blessing in retaliation. We think we will be blessed if we retaliate and get that eye for an eye or get that tooth for a tooth. And he says, that's not where the blessing comes from. The, the blessing comes from overlooking that offense. In fact, the word that's used here, bless, it's really interesting in this context because it means to speak well of or to give God special favor. Really interesting. Now, especially with all the things going on in our world, I am not saying that you shouldn't speak up against injustice. That's not what I'm saying. Okay, what I'm saying here is sometimes the way that you can bless someone is to speak as positively about them as possible. And sometimes if you have nothing nice to say, you say nothing at all. Sometimes you can bless people by your silence. And sometimes your, your silence speaks even louder than your words. I mean, if I, if I was calling somebody for a recommendation, say for instance for work, I was calling them as one of their recommendations, and I said, hey, can you give me a recommendation on Sally? And they go, you know, I'd rather not. That's interesting. Probably not a positive recommendation. The silence speaks louder than words. And some of you, if you suffer for doing good, certainly speak out against injustice, I get it. But some of you need to be silent instead of retaliating with your words and speaking a blessing which when this word bless is used is always in contrast with cursing. So blessing instead of cursing. What if you didn't say anything to people about, that, about how you were treated and you prayed for that person? You prayed for your enemies. You spoke a blessing to God and said, God, change their heart because you know what? I was just like them before I came to know you. That's pretty radical. That's very radical in our world today. Rather than retaliating and taking an eye for an eye, what if you bless those who didn't deserve it? That's a way that you can suffer rightly and the eyes of the Lord are on his righteous. He goes on, Peter does, and he says, seek peace instead of stirring the pot to build a case for revenge. This is in that same vein of using your words or not using your words. When you are suffering for righteousness' sake, Peter says to seek peace. Look at verses 10 and 11. He says, for whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. If somebody mistreats me, what I oftentimes want to do is go build my case with other people. I wanna go tell everybody else how badly I was treated. And our world does that. I mean, hello, Yelp, okay? I mean, it, it, you look on there, if you looked on there, you would never go anywhere in this world. It, it, you get so many negative reviews of hotels, of restaurants, of places, like everything is negative. Everybody wants you to know, know how badly they were treated so that they can build a case so that they can get revenge on how they were treated. Let me, let me ask you this question. If we go that route, when does it ever stop? You know, it's kind of that eye for an eye. When does it stop? 
after I have no more eyes, after I have no more teeth. I mean, like the cycle just never ends. I think that's why Jesus comes along and offers forgiveness. See, this is where we identify with him. He pursued peace with us by laying down his life. How much restitution could Jesus have asked for from us? How much revenge could Jesus have against us for our sins? Yet, he didn't take it out on us. He took it out on himself. He didn't speak against us, but instead was silent, just like Isaiah 53 says. It's a shear before his, uh, sheep before his, the shear is silent, so he was the lamb before the slaughter. He, did, he didn't say anything. Jesus offers us forgiveness. I mean, Jesus lived so radically in this world that it was so different than the way that the world lives today. That's the way he desires us to live. Why? Because it's not only better because we can identify with him, that we are then filled with his power to live it out, but it's because we get a platform to witness from him. You see, suffering for good gives us a platform to witness for Christ in this world. Suffering for good gives us a platform to witness for Christ in this world. Uh, Look at verses 13 to 17, just Uh, Follow along with me. I'll I'll read it and again, break it down. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. That's a promise, folks. You will be blessed. Again, we approach this through faith, not through secular humanistic logic. You approach this through faith. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, that word is to use uh, to speak of false accusations, Those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. See, when we approach suffering in our world, we automatically want to avoid it. We automatically want to run from it. That's why we either compromise our standards so we don't lose prosperity, opportunity, or popularity, or we vindicate ourselves. We push back into it with a vengeance. And Jesus says, you're fighting for the wrong things in this world. You're, you're fighting for things in this world that you're never gonna get, which is why I think it's interesting if you look back at verses 13 and 14. He says, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Have no fear of them. How much of, it, how, how much of us shrink back because we fear man? Fear of man will prove to be a snare, but those who trust in the Lord will be kept safe. That's Proverbs 29, 25, I believe. We, we, he says, don't fear people. And how ironic is it that Peter is saying this? Think about Peter's life. Remember, Jesus is put on trial And Peter follows how closely? At a distance. 
and he's sitting around the fire. And remember, he somehow seems to be asked three times, aren't you with him? No, 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 no. <laughs> no, no, let me compromise my standard. Let me just lie. No, no, not, not me. Oh yeah, that was you. No, I promise, not me. That dude's a dirtbag. I'd never be with him. I'm not following him at all. Why is he doing that? He's afraid for his life. He's afraid of losing popularity. He has a fear of man. Ironic that he's saying now, hey, don't fear people. Don't be troubled. Don't be afraid of what they can do to you. It reminds me of what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, which is a great, great chapter if you wanna look at persecution, how Jesus sends out his disciples. But he says, hey, don't fear those who can harm the body. Fear, those, fear the God who, who has your spirit. This one goes on forever. <laughs> this one doesn't. Live in light of God, not necessarily in light of man. You see, I think when Peter is saying, don't be afraid of people, I think that's why he follows it up with verse 15, because he says that we need to be prepared to give a defense for the hope when the world wonders why. You see, when we are suffering for doing good, he says we need to be prepared to give an answer for why we're okay with that in this world. Why, why it's okay. Why we are deferring our hope. He goes on to say, if you look back at verse 15, he says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Why does he tell us to be prepared to give a defense? Because he wasn't ready to. He wasn't ready to give a defense for how close he was to Jesus. So he was shrinking back. And he says, man, I've realized now I need to step, I need to stand on my convictions. I need to stand on who I believe Jesus is and have my defense prepared. The, the word that's used for defense or give an answer, some other translation says, is the word where we get apologetics, apologia. That's where we get, uh, you know, you've got to have a defense for your faith. But I want to be very clear about what Peter is talking about. Because when he talks about a, this apologia, he's not talking about apologetics as far as argumentation. I feel like people use apologetics to argue. And that's not what he's talking about. What is he talking about here? Think about it for just a second. What he's talking about is we, you and I, living in such a different way that it solicits a question from somebody else, like, your life is so different. So it begs a question, and then you answer them. Is your life different than the world's? It, 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 are there aspects of your life? Are there aspects of how you think? Are there aspects about your behavior, how you carry yourselves? Aspects about your speech that are so different that you don't, you don't ask people, hey, do you wanna argue about apologetics? Have you ever thought about the flood? Have you ever thought, you know? But that they just go, how are you handling this so well? You seem to be so even keel. I just, what is it? How many times have you been asked that question? 
I'll be honest, I haven't been asked that question much. And that's convicting to me. I think what he's calling us to is to live in such a way that's different that people go, why? And then we should be ready to have that hope. It's how I came to know Christ. There was a guy when I was 16 years old, he was one year older than I was, he was a senior in high school, who lived so radically different that literally I asked him, I want what you have, teach me. I don't know what you've got. But I know that what you have looks a lot better than what I got and what all my friends have. So I want that. Now, obviously, that's the Holy Spirit working through him, working in me. But do we live our lives so distinctly different than the world that they wonder why? And then we're able to prepare an answer for the hope that we have. And that hope is Jesus, that we don't have to fight in this world to get what we got while we can. But we can say, God, you're fighting for us. Battle is yours. I just stand on my hope that you're in control, your eyes are on me, your ears are open to my prayer, and your face and your favor is upon me. So prepare a defense. Second, present your hope in an attractive way. When you're asked, don't be a jerk about it. When you're asked, be kind. In fact, the words that he uses here in verse 15, he says, do it with gentleness and respect. Not vindictively, not going, I'm so glad you asked because you've been mistreating me for so many years. You just come back at somebody and blow them back. It's like, great, what'd you get out of that one? You got your vindication, you happy? You've pushed someone else away. Instead, do it with gentleness and respect. So, so glad you asked. Let me tell you, folks, remember, the gospel is offensive enough. We don't need to be offensive. Let let God's truth convict their own hearts. You don't have to be offensive. It reminds me of uh, Proverbs 15 when it it says, uh, I wrote it down here, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Do it with gentleness and respect. If somebody asks you, why are you so different? Do it with gentleness and respect in an attractive way that makes that a possibility for them to accept the hope that you have in Jesus as well. And then finally, make yourself accountable to the Holy Spirit to keep a clear conscience. Make yourself accountable to the Holy Spirit to keep a clear conscience. Verse 16, he says, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. You can't just be uh, gentle and respectful without ever getting to the truth. It's both. It's grace and truth. It's it's compassion and action and truth. Facts, I, I, I totally get that. We've got to get to the gospel, but the Holy Spirit is our guide. We don't have to convict people of their relationship with God and their way of life, et cetera. Remember, John 16, eight, it's the Holy Spirit's role to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, not your job. That's why the best thing that you can do is pray. Pray for people. Isn't that what Jesus said? Pray for your enemies. Pray for those who mistreat you. Not stir up anger, 
Not fight against them and not fight for yourself. And here's why you can live in such a radically different way than the world teaches us to live. It's because suffering for good will ultimately be vindicated just like it has in the past. Suffering for good will be vindicated just like it has in the past. Look at verses 18 to 22. I wanna read these, but just to let you know, these are some of the most, uh, these are some of the hardest verses to exposit. Uh, and I'll probably address more of this in a weekly video, which if you watch that like you read the pastor's desk, you won't see it, but um, look at verses 18 to 22. He says, for Christ also suffered once for sins. Also, also, get that, also? It means we should suffer for doing good. No servant's greater than his master. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he may bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formally did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that's eight, that was Noah's family, persons were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, that time of Noah, the flood, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. Why does Peter put this part in here? I think because he puts it in here as two examples of people who suffered for doing good who were ultimately vindicated by God. One of those, obviously, is Noah, who God told him the sin was so horrible and horrific in the world that he was gonna judge the world by the flood. And he said, build an ark. Invite people onto it. And for those years that he was building the ark, he got nothing but reviled, nothing but rejected. And God ultimately vindicated him. Now, I know it says baptism saves you. It doesn't literally mean that baptism saves you. It means that that was a symbol of the parting from the sin of the world by faith into new life with, with God, just like it represents in us. The faith that we put in Christ, just like he's the ark that carries us through, carries us to God, that it's not a removal of dirt because that doesn't save you, just like it says it's the faith in Christ that saves us. Christ saves us. That's what he's saying as far as baptism. But ultimately, Noah was vindicated. Even though the whole world was against him, God said, I'll vindicate you. And then ultimately, you get Christ, who suffered once for sins, who also did nothing wrong, but through God's will, laid down his life so that we might be brought to God. He didn't get revenge on us. He doesn't get any restitution from us. He only gets our worship, our adoration. And in fact, the ultimate vindication that comes for him, I love it as Peter sums up this whole chapter where we've been talking about, and even since chapter two, where we've been talking about submission. And Jesus submitted his life to the will of the Father so that we might be brought to God. And then what does it say here at the end in verse 22? that Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected now to him. Ultimate vindication will come 
So we trust God with that. Listen, folks. Those who God uses greatly oftentimes suffer severely. It's just the way that it goes. Why? Because we have this treasure in jars of clay. And when we are broken and battered and bruised, we're not crushed, we're not in despair, but through those cracks, Christ shines through. So we trust him to fight our battle. We trust him with our ultimate vindication because we have proof of it through the resurrection of our Savior, the victorious King Jesus. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for this passage that teaches us how to live in a world that doesn't understand you. Lord, I'm reminded that that's exactly how I lived before I came to know you. I didn't suffer for doing good. I suffered because of my sins. Lord, would you give us such great courage to live so counterculturally that the world asks why? That we don't look for an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth, but we turn the other cheek. We offer forgiveness. We offer hope in Christ. We have that answer ready because we trust you to fight for us, the one whose eyes are on us, ears are open to us, and whose favor is upon us. We ultimately stand on you and put our trust in you, Lord Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen.